Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hi, everybody. I'm Jasfal Singh. Welcome again to Women Leaders in Medicine, a podcast series on Consultant 360. On behalf of Consultant 360, I'd like to welcome our listeners. And today we have another great pair of esteemed guests. So with me today are Alan Hillegast and, and Chris Permi. Ladies, want to introduce yourselves? Ellen? Sure. I am an American Physical Therapy Association board certified clinical specialist in cardiopulmonary. I'm also an adjunct professor at Mercer University in Atlanta, and I'm the president and CEO of PT Cardiopulmonary Educators, which is a web-based education company. Fantastic. Chris? My name is uh, Christiane Permi. I am a physical therapist from Houston, Texas. I am currently a uh, rehab education specialist at Houston Methodist Hospital, and I'm also the owner and president of uh, Perme ICU Rehab Seminars, uh, which is a company uh, which presents um, lectures and seminars on the topic of early mobility in ICU. Fantastic. First of all, I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of both of your work. I think, Ellen, you and I met through the American Thoracic Society, and then Chris, you and I met through Society of Critical Care Medicine. But both of you have inspired a lot of people I know, including the physical therapists I work with, who are so ex- who are such experts, partly because of both of you. But tell us why you are so passionate about mobilization of the ICU patient. I learned early on in my career the horrible side effects of bed rest and how it impacted my patients, their return to function, their return to their leisure activities, and their all-around quality of life. And I said, there's got to be something better. And we had always been doing early mobility way back when I started, and that was before we had restraints. So when all of this sedation era came through, I started to see these people who were so impaired. And I, I think that's my passion is that I know you don't have to be that impaired mentally and physically. And I know that it can be done. And so I think that's why I've been passionate about it. How about you, Chris? Ever since I was in physical therapy school, I was always drawn to the acute care side of medicine and also to the really complex issues that uh, some diseases presented. So when I started working at Houston Methodist, I started doing chest PT uh, in the late 1980s. And after that, I started working a little bit in the ICU. And uh, at that time, uh, um, there were two physicians that were very passionate about uh, early mobility. And they kept telling me that if I just got those patients out of bed and I walked them, that uh, they would not die. And I just could not really understand uh, the relationship between my job as a physical therapist and patients not dying at all. So basically, I I, I didn't really want to do a whole lot of that just because I never had the training. That's not something that I learned in school. I never had a professor, a teacher, or a course that uh, would teach me how to mobilize those patients in ICU. So I was extremely, you know, frightened. I was, it, the ICU environment was overwhelming, but luckily those two physicians, they were there to help me because they were just so into getting his patients mobilized that for the most time, I mean, they would just be there with me because I told them if they're not there, I wouldn't do it. But the whole thing is that the more I did it and I saw the results, the more fascinated I became. And finally, by 
you know, like the early 1990s, I decided that's the only thing I wanted to do as a physical therapist in my entire career. Amazing. So both of you connected to your patients, to others, and you both have actually inspired others. So I was going to ask you, prior to COVID-19, I mean, we've struggled a lot with mobilization as a country, as a profession, and internationally. This is not something intuitive. I think, Chris, you you talked about that a little bit. But the aspect of what are other barriers? We said you mentioned training, Chris. Are there other barriers that you think were really had needed to be overcome to really make this part of the mainstream culture? In my opinion, one of the number one barriers to mobilizing patients in critical care is basically the knowledge deficits of uh, professionals that they're totally unaware of the terrible side effects of bed rest any mobilization, because I honestly believe that anybody who reads about bed rest and mobilization and what that causes, mm-hmm. you know, to the human body, even in healthy subjects, you know, they would be a lot more interested in mobilizing those patients. So that is, I think, the number one barrier is like really the knowledge deficit. In addition to that, of course, the sedation, um, it's an, another barrier because uh, you can have the best physical therapist, the best nurses, everybody, but you know, if the culture of the ICU is like a toward sedation, there is not much we can do for those patients. And another barrier, I believe, is the lack of resources. I mean, and these resources would be as far as the staff or even the equipment, because for example, if you send me a physical therapist to mobilize a critically ill patient on mechanical ventilation and CRT in the ICU, I mean, I'm not going to go very far by myself, right? So in the same way that if the patient is profoundly weak and I do not have, uh, you know, the technology or some of the equipment to help me, I wouldn't be able to do. So basically, I like to think of those barriers, not necessarily as barriers, but I also like to say that these are um, potential barriers that um, if we really want to, we can overcome that. Ellen, anything to add? Yeah, I think one of the things is, is that there's also a lack of understanding between the disciplines. So, um, and it, we really need interdisciplinary care of the patient, but we're not trained that way. Many aren't. Such as nurses are trained to care for the patient and, and take care of things and make sure they're comfortable. And physical therapists are also called physical torturers. We're taught to get them up, get them moving, no matter what, it's better for them. And so we, we're hitting heads because we're going against our basic beliefs. Our belief is not to keep them comfortable, but to keep them moving because we know that's better. And nurses want to make sure the lines and tubes don't come out, and I don't blame them. And they also want to make sure the patient's comfortable and not in pain. And so we butt heads there. And then we often understand the role of the physician, but maybe not the respiratory therapist. And we just need to know each other's roles. We need to work together and not compete. We need to work together. And I think that's the barrier is when you don't have a team and you don't work together. And so that's a challenge, but I think it's a communication challenge. Mm -hmm. You can teach each other and you can communicate each other with each other. And I think that can be overcome. And I totally agree with Chris that sedation is huge and understanding the effects of sedation on breathing and mobility. And I also agree with her about the training because I don't think walking into an ICU is entry-level physical therapy and they don't have the training in their own physical therapy worlds. And a lot of other disciplines don't have that. So I think training is also key. Training and knowledge. 
the culture of sedation, the idea of resources, equipment, staff, personnel, the idea of interdisciplinary care and communication at a high level. And I think what you're kind of getting at, Alan, is also a culture of a shared goal. I think the idea of mobilization is part of a shared goal for the patient to go for liberation, which is something that um, we've all been kind of working, talking around, the idea of patient, getting patients out of the ICU back to reasonable quality of life. And I think I, I, I have to say I learned a lot from, my, from both of you as well as the rest of the whole discipline, actually. And, includes, and I include occupational therapists in this discussion as well. This is all stuff we've been working on as a society, multiple societies, your own professional societies. We were kind of making some headway, I think, as a society about trying to go more towards liberation, that including, including interdisciplinary team care, including the idea of mobilization, including occupational rehabilitation as well. And then along comes COVID-19. <laughs> and this pandemic comes and pretty much turns all the care that progress that we did sort of on its head. Explain to me, um, someone very simple like myself, like, how did you approach this? How did you self overcome some of the challenges that were here? What are some of the challenges involved with COVID-19 for our, our audience? Uh, Ellen? Well, so one issue was we didn't have enough equipment, PPE equipment, to be treating the patient going in and out when we wanted. And so we had to overcome that barrier. And what we did is, is we learned how to communicate through glass to the nurses who were in there, who were, had to go in and out a lot, we communicated the things that we wanted to see done. And we also helped educate them and work with them to try and tell me what you hear in the lungs, then um, you know, get them sitting up and stuff. Because one of the things is that they would be left alone if we weren't going in. And so we had to go into the units and get them to mobilize the patients through the wall and we'd be watching the monitor, we'd be communicating back and forth. So we kind of taught people how to do some of our skills because of this situation. And we were also pushing to get the patients up early. We understood that they were sick and all that kind of stuff and people were short staffed, but we were really pushing for the mobility part because if you listen to some of the places where they didn't have enough staff, such as in New York, and they were overwhelmed with patients, they were sedating them, sedating them, sedating them because they couldn't get into the units if they pulled something out. And so there was nobody really working with the patients but the nurses. And so they sedated them heavily and mobilization was very delayed in those places. So we tried not to do that. And I'm going to tell you one really interesting thing that happened in COVID at our facility. We built a brand new building and it wasn't supposed to open up for during COVID, but, and it was all glass from floor to ceiling glass in the ICU units. Well, they moved all the COVID patients out there. And do you know what? They mm -hmm. had less problems with um, mental cognitive issues because they were looking around at life. They weren't looking at a teeny window out to the courtyard. They were actually looking at life and we noticed a huge difference in their cognitive and their personality. They were more responsive. And it was amazing to see the change just in the environment of the glass where they could see life versus seeing an ICU unit. And we saw, I mean, huge changes in our COVID patients. So I'm, I'm gonna tell you that environment was really interesting to watch. Chris, what did you notice? Well, I truly believe that COVID really changed the landscape in critical care. 
and definitely changed the landscape for critical care physical therapy, not only in the US, but throughout the entire you know, world in a very positive way. So I think now physical therapy in ICU uh, is a lot more recognized than it was, you know, before COVID. But yes, we did tons of challenges in order to care for those patients. And I agree with Ellen that, you know, one of the f- most important things was just resources as far as PPEs that uh, we could not really be using. So it was limiting us going to the rooms. But in addition to that, we had to be concerned about, uh, you know, the risk of transmitting the disease to other patients or even like a you know, our staff getting that. So there was always that fear associated with caring for the patients, particularly in the beginning. Um, The equipment that we routinely use to care for those patients, we were not allowed to bring them in the room because uh, if we brought into the room, it had to stay there. So we were kind of limited on what we things that we could offer the patients. Another thing that we really felt the difference was families not being present. We routinely, you know, really engage the families and we teach them the exercises. We want them to the part of the patient's recovery and the patient's family not being there, you know, it was very difficult for us. We also noticed that the difficulties with some cognitive issues that we identified in some patients and we really had to learn as physical therapists to really refer, identify those in our care for the patients, in our evaluations, and also let the doctors know about it and also refer to speech therapy and cognitive training and things like that. And another huge challenge that we found was that the lack of available placement in post-acute settings. So for us, that became a really challenge because we had to send those patients home and that we had to really make sure that, I mean, we did whatever we could to help those patients recover so we could send them home. Mm, Interesting. I think both of you highlighted, I think, what is a nice segue to well, some some are calling for lack of a better term long COVID, the idea of what results in you know prolonged critical illness type of physiology, the effects of this vac- virus, not just the virus, but the effects of sedation, mo- lack of family, the idea of unable to really get them to really see. I think Alan, you said it very nicely. The light made a big difference. Just the seeing life around you the stimulation, but without family sort of barriers, you might say to improvement, we saw a huge change in how we think and we might, it might have an effect on what we call long COVID. Exactly. What you're kind of getting at. So that's really interesting. And then the idea of, I think Chris, you brought up something really interesting is that you sort of said almost like a silver lining was people recognize we were doing all these things and now you take it away and now you realize how much it was missed. You know, and I think we all felt it. We felt this sudden, our heart sank that we couldn't get them the physical therapy, the occupational therapy, the mobilization going. We couldn't, we needed to walk them or they weren't ready to go home yet, but we had to, at a necessity in placement, send people to places that may not have been ideal or quite ready for their, for their ideal recovery, just given the resource. Is that pretty accurate? Anything else to add? think that covers it. Chris had a lot of points that we had the same problem with, and we realized that we had to do a lot more rehab of our patients before sending them on. And I think um, now there's actually been two studies that have come out talking about really pro rehab. The more you push, the more minutes of rehab, the better the outcome. So I think COVID helped with that too. Interesting. So do you feel like you're mentioned sort of these interdisciplinary relationships? Have those changed since COVID? Well, we, in our facility, we had a great camaraderie. Hmm. Um, Our biggest problem is when we don't have regular staff. So when we have travelers, 
it really makes a difference because they don't know the culture, they don't know the team spirit. And I think that's a huge thing is we're seeing so many travelers. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate for our environment because they don't know how to be part of the team. Interesting. I, I, how much you guys have really helped o- shape what this mobilization looks like. There are lots of societies working in this space. And can you tell us a little bit, for those of us, I'm in pulmonary and critical care, and I only know sort of my little fiefdom, you might say, of, of, of disciplines and societies. But this is a much broader movement nationally, internationally. Give me some highlights as to what's happening around the globe and around the United States, if you don't mind, about it that excites you in this field. I'll jump in. So we found actually with COVID that ECMO did save a lot more lives. And we're seeing a lot of ECMO. We're seeing, we were doing a lot of ECMO. We're seeing places doing a lot more ECMO and more people are contacting us trying to learn how to do mobility with ECMO. So we're seeing people where they backed away from some of this mechanical circuitry um, and mobilizing patients with mechanical circuits. They are now doing more mobility. So I think that's really good. As far as other places, unfortunately, when you have change of staff, you're seeing change in the mobility program. Yeah. And um, I hate to say it, but, you know, places that had a really good, strong mobility program, when staff changes, the mobility program decreases. And I can't emphasize enough how important having a nurse champion is on the mobility team and having more and more nurse champions, because that's what keeps mobility going. Chris, what what have you noticed? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say something before I forget that, you know, goes along with what Ellen was saying is that what we have to really understand and never really forget is that mobility of patients in ICU, it's everybody's job. I mean, we really have to kind of let it go this idea that, oh, we are just waiting for a PT to come here to get the patient out of bed. Mobility, it's everybody's job. And I don't think that there's any one discipline that is part of that critical care team that is not responsible for mobility. You know, and I'm going to be honest with you. I have, when, and I'm very vocal about this. And I remember once in a meeting, a physician looking at me and saying, well, does that mean that you want me to do your job now? <laughs> And I said, no, I really don't. (laughs) That's not what I mean. But uh, what I want everybody to know is like, for example, physicians, they completely underestimate the power that they have as educators. You know, so if every physician came to the bedside and asked the patient, have you been out of bed? Are you getting out of bed for your meals? Have you been lifting your legs? Let me see if you lift your arms. I mean, just that you don't have to get anybody out of your uh, out of the bed, but your words towards encouraging the patient and, and the nurses, you know, making sure that uh, you pass it on to the nurses, how important you believe as a physician that uh, that kind of activity is for your patient. You know, I'm gonna be honest with you. I believe that uh, if mobility of patients in ICU was a pill, physicians would be giving this pill, nurses, they would be giving this pill like uh, all day long without even thinking about it, you know? So I think that's one of the most important uh, um, ideas that I want people to remember is that don't ever think about, oh, let's wait for physical therapy because that wait that we do may impact somebody's life. It may cost someone, I mean, the fact that they'll never be able to walk again. And I have seen that in my career, okay? That's very interesting. I think it's well said. I think what you're sort of saying is mobilization is a team sport. And it's a team sport that has significant consequences, if not done well. 
I think, and Ellen, I think you sort of piggybacked on that and saying, not only is it, it it's a necessity, but now we're seeing it actually being done in newer venues and at a scale that we haven't seen before with advanced mechanical circulatory support and other devices. As we advance our critical care frontier, we cannot forget that mobilization is still a premier goal. You don't need to be an expert in it. You just need to sort of encourage it, work along with the team, but that everybody in the team is involved from the pharmacist adjusting medications to the respiratory therapist and adjusting their ventilator strategy, respiratory strategies to the speech and swallow pathologists. Everybody's involved in sort of how to get these patients healing. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. The way I think is like, just imagine, that's my dream. Imagine like if the nurses came to check the vital signs, instead of doing a blood pressure of the patient laying in the bed, if they set the patient on the side of the bed, let me let me check her blood pressure and set them on the side of the bed. I mean, if you do that two or three times during the day, you know, but unfortunately that's not a priority, you know? And I understand, I fully understand like nurses are completely overworked, but uh, I don't know that anybody really gives the true importance um, how that little bit that is done throughout the day can make an incredible impact on the recovery of these patients. Well said, Ellen, you were to say something? Yeah, I have a residency program and I tell my residents as part of their training, ask questions like, well, why can't we get them up? You know, when you, when you get pushback and if we all on the whole team would say that, why can't we get them up? And they say, well, you know, they've been on this IV med. Well, how long have they been on that IV med? Are they stable? Those kind of things. So clinical reasoning is very key with these patients, which is what we teach but asking why. And so when I have these fresh new therapists coming into ICUs and they're afraid to do things, I say, learn from others. So ask why or ask, ask the RT to show you things on the ventilator. If we would teach each other instead of having these silos and teach each other about what we do and, you know, it's not like we're going to take over for respiratory therapists and manage the ventilators. We're not going to do that, but we do have a lot of knowledge about ventilators. And so what is it about this ventilator setting that you don't want me to get the patient up? Is there a different setting we could put them on so that we could get them up? So you try and come to a mutual agreement so that your goal is mobility. And you know sometimes we just don't understand each other because of our background and our training. But if we would just ask the question, why can't we? And Chris's pill, <laughs> the doctor goes around, but why? why can't we? What is limiting them? And then try and figure out a way. I mean, we've had patients, yeah, they can't sit over the side of the bed. They have no muscle control. So we started using standing beds. And when we started to use the standing beds, we actually could wean um, Guillain-Barre patients off of the ventilator, even though they couldn't sit over the side of the bed because we could get them more upright. So you ask the question, why can't we get them up? And then you all work towards figuring out a way to get them up. That's a great way of, of doing it. Not saying, how do we get them up? But why are we not? And looking at sort of like, that is the goal. That is the true North, essentially, is getting people to a functional status. And I think, Chris, you said it very well. If it was a pill, I would all, almost challenge our, our listeners to think it's not just that you would be giving it, it'd almost be unethical not to give it on the sort of, because uh, it's such an imp important part of the recovery process. So with that, I'm going to change gears a little bit. Talk about, you know, the pandemic has had a lot of effects on um, all of society, including our physical therapy and their co and colleagues. And so how are you doing? How are the people in your profession doing, your teammates doing? Give us a little insight about what's the culture like today. Oh, I have to tell you, there's a lot of burnout out there. Yeah. There's a lot of burnout out there. And 
first off, we all feel safe. I mean, that was once we got our vaccine, you know, we, we, we had this whole different approach to life. But then there's this, this whole burnout and there's this fear of this coming back again, fear of having another increase. And, you know, I, I don't think people are out of the burnout enough to, to tolerate a big increase. The second thing is, part of it is, is like, you get this big increase after you open up and people don't do the right things. And so you're stuck taking care of these patients that, that didn't do the right thing. So part of that is gets you a little angry, yeah. you know, and frustrated that people aren't doing the right things. Why didn't you get your vaccine? You know, and these, you know, cause people can get vaccines now. And people will say, oh, if I'd known it was this bad, I would have gotten the vaccine. And you're sitting there going, really? Right. Really? Too, late for, too late for a do-over, huh? Yeah. So um, there is greater comfort with the vaccine. I think it's wonderful, but there's frustration out there. There's some burnout. And there's really a need for many, many more trained staff. I think Chris will say the same thing about that. And, and we just need to ramp up the training on some of these people. Yeah, that's well said. Chris? I completely agree, particularly our physical therapists that had to work the COVID units. I mean, they were burned out, completely exhausted, you know, and working nonstop. And, uh, and again, um, another issue that we are having right now is like all of those patients who did not look, seek, you know, medical care because of COVID last year, now they're coming back to I don't know other hospitals in our hospital sicker than ever. So it's really interesting to see that these patients are not only sicker, but they also somehow weaker and they have uh, lots of other issues. So uh, I totally agree with Helen, Ellen that uh, burnout, uh, it's a big issue. And we are really, we are trying to hire more staff, but everybody's really working very hard uh, just to be able to see those patients and uh, make sure that they're being discharged, you know, to the appropriate, you know, level of care. And also if they go home, that they are safe going home. That's well said. And um, hopefully uh, we can keep you guys from burning out. But I want to thank you, first of all, for all you're doing. I mean, it's amazing. But not only are you guys teaching, doing, working at the bedside, doing all this stuff, inspiring others, you both started your own companies. You both are, you know, extremely successful and well-respected in your fields. I think it's amazing. Um, a lot of our audience today are w women clinicians. Can you give us some advice as women leaders in the field that you want to share with them? Chris? What I would just say is that find something that you're passionate about it and just go for it. You know, just put your heart into it. If you do that, uh, everything else, you know, is going to come naturally. That's all I can think. You know, just really follow your heart, follow your passion. And uh, particularly when you talk about patient care, uh, if there's an area that you're passionate about it, just, just do that. And uh, everything else is just going to just come naturally. Well, you have to realize that as women and as physical therapists, we're caregivers and we don't take care of ourselves <laughs> and I'm guilty. <laughs> and I really think it's so important to take care of ourselves. And so you need to find time to have coffee with somebody, to Zoom with someone at night, have a glass of wine on Zoom with someone if you can't meet with them because you've got to stay there because your kids are little or you're taking care of your parents. I did both. I had kids and parents that I was taking care of. And we are really bad at not taking care of ourselves. So schedule a date to go get a mani-pedi, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it is, but you really have to. Um, I personally just started back taking up tennis. I gave it up the whole time during my career and with my family. 
and I had been really active playing tennis and I am having a blast playing tennis. And it's like, wow, there is life out there. So you have to do those things. Well, I think we're out of time, but I want to say to both of you, thank you for all you do for everybody and not just for recording today's podcast and spending the time with us, with our audience, but also for the, the heavy lifting every day, pun intended. On behalf of Consultant 360, we thank our guests, Alan Hillegas and Christian Perny for being wonderful, inspirational role models for everybody. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me.